0: Good afternoon. Sorry for the delay. Welcome to Navarra FM, here on London's number one radio station, Residence 104.4 FM. I'm Aaron Bastani, at Aaron Bastani on Twitter, and as so often used to be the case, I'm joined by co-founder of Navarra Media, James Butler, at Pierce Penliss. Hi, James. Hello. This week we are talking Syria. ISIL, and varieties of conflict and coalition which are inarguably transnational in nature. 2015 was the year of the formation of a new caliphate, arguably the first real one for a thousand years. Today we're going to dissect what that means and the complications, complexities, possibilities it may furnish us and people around the rest of the world in 2016. Before we continue, let's start with a question, a problematic, if you will, of what is happening in Syria? What's going on, right? Well, I couldn't put it better than this following extract from Outstanding Peace in the Atlantic, published in October this year, which described the Syrian conflict in the following terms. Now, here I quote. It has devolved from peaceful protests against the government in 2011 to a violent insurgency that has drawn in numerous other countries. It's partly a civil war of government against people. Partly a religious war pitting Assad's minority Alawite sect, along with Shiite fighters from Iran and Hezbollah in Lebanon, against Sunni rebel groups. And increasingly, it's a proxy war featuring Russia and Iran against the United States and its allies. Whatever it is, it has so far killed 220,000 people, displaced half of the country's population, and facilitated the rise of ISIL. While a de facto international coalition, one that makes informal allies of Assad, the United States, Russia Iran, Turkey, the Kurds, and others is focusing on defeating ISIL in Syria, the battlefield features numerous other overlapping conflicts. The Syrian war looks different depending on which protagonists you focus on. That seems really difficult to make sense of, but as we try so often in Navarra, we're going to try and make it really simple. So, James, let's talk about some of the specificities of what's going on in Syria. You know, People always say, "Well, oh, the Middle East—it's so complicated. It's a minefield. It's a mess." That often feeds into, you know, assumptions that are quite orientalist. Don't really bring in, you know, histories contextualised, understood within, you know, broader stories of twentieth, nineteenth-century colonialism. So, is this just? a mess, an intractable you know, uh, dispute between brown people as, as, as Europeans, as the uh, mainstream media so lazily puts it or are there particularities here which make this particular conflict uh, conflict rather new, different and
1: uh, original? Your thoughts? <laughs> well, I mean yeah, this isn't going to be an, an easy in, uh, this isn't going to be an easy show in one sense, it's not going to be uh, there, isn't, there isn't actually an easy box to drop The Syrian conflict into Um, you. You are quite right to say that there is a proxy war going on between, say, Russian uh, and American interests in the area. That's the most obvious one. There is also an internal Sunni conflict, sort of uh, between Qatar and uh, Saudi proxies in the area. Uh, That that sort of bubbles away under the surface a little. There's yes, as you mentioned, the the. Relationship between Turkey uh, and its Kurdish population, and its uh, orientation towards Syrian Kurds as well, um, and its anxieties in that sense, and those are are uh, only a few of the things going on there. Um, it is also enormously complicated because it is a civil war, and it's a civil war in a society that actually had a functioning civil society. It's one of the things to remember about Syria is that it, you know, uh, it, it was a functioning republic. And although we we should come on to talk about. Uh, the extent that republicanism as uh, a recognizable force existed in, in Syria as well as other Arab republics. Uh, and it's, uh, as is often true in civil wars that endure for. Uh, any number of years, it's it's hard to find an entirely virtuous side to take, and I I, I don't think we should be insisting that any side is entirely virtuous here. It would be uh, folly to do so. Uh, it's also worth noting that reports out of the country are at best partisan, and at worst, consist of downright falsehoods. And there's no easy generalization to make here, and I think Patrick Coburn is right to say that any generalization one makes about Syria will, will, will be false. Um, So there are a few areas that are are worth discussing. Um, One is, I think, the way in which the Syrian conflict has been presented here in the UK uh, as largely actually ancillary to domestic concerns about uh, ISIS or ISIL or whatever you want to call them. Uh, so cool, Islamic State. Uh, uh, so cool. Uh, yes, of course, because that, that is, that's how we're going to Such win. is a isn't powerful I, of, like... intervention. So cool. Uh, oh, yes. I, I mean, the, these sort of terminological debates are like, fatuous at best. They could almost be theologians. <laughs> yes, well, we'll talk about theology in a bit. Um, the, the, I think one of the things that we should talk about is what the, the longer term US strategy in the Middle East is. Uh, and that I think is is you know uh, that I think is really important uh and and you know we will come on to it uh the war in syria itself and whether it whether there exists any potential for resolution now uh, whether there was any potential for resolution at the beginning whether well, the forces are at work in any such resolution it's uh you know it's uh, uh, you know whether one thinks there is a negotiated peace possible uh certainly depends on one 's assessment of of the various forces at work uh but especially, I think we should talk about the war in the context of global economic systems, not only uh, petrocapital, mm. um, but we can also think in more general terms about the relationship between nation states and global capitalism, um, and whether there exi- what You know, the, the question of, of what kind of global system we exist in after the decline of the Soviet Union, uh, after the, the end of a sort of uh, bipolar uh, uh, world. Uh, One lens through which I I want to do this is the Kurdish question, the history of the Kurds in the region, the relationship of uh, organisations like the PKK, which is the Kurdish Workers' Party, uh, to the question of Kurdish, the Kurdish Kurdish nation state, Um, and that I think is 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 intensely important. But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, whether yeah, I I I want to hand over to you because I know you want to talk about uh, uh, the, the Islamic state.
0: Everything. I've got so much to talk about today. I mean, yeah, I, I okay, want to talk about, uh, well, you know, uh, long-time and Trump as of, well. Long-time listeners, Navarro. Uh, no, I've got a lot to talk about a lot of the time. Uh, today's no exception. Um, let's just get some fundamentals out of the way. I mean, when we're saying, when is this going to end, right? There's actually some decent data on this that says that 20th century civil wars, on average, well, I think it's actually since the Second World War, they last 10 years on average, right? Mm. So we're five years into this one, on average. It's difficult to talk about. These things mathematically, I think the average currency lasts forty-seven years, something, right? So, you know, then you know, clearly some last longer than others. Some last six months. Um, This could last a very, very long time. It may finish next month, although that's highly unlikely. We spoke briefly before the show, and I think we agree on this. Many people agree on this. There probably won't be an end to it until either Assad is killed or he steps down, or there is some kind of political solution, which means he is no longer the the executive, the head of state mm. of at least a, a certain part of Syria um, or you know, what may be the political solution will come to this later on is that we may have a sort of tripartite solution pretty similar actually to what we see in Iraq informally at the moment you know, Sunni uh, Shia, Iran, the, the difference with Syria of course is, look, other than I think, was it the Umayyad Caliphate, 7th, 8th century, ninth century, other than then, Syria's never really been the heart of anything you know, its coasts thousands of year, years ago obviously was the home to the Phoenicians. Its interior, you know, not much going on, not much cultivable land, poor. Um, I think actually in terms of arable land, it's got one third of an acre of arable land per person. In terms of its usable land, I think it's 10%, right? So this country, 24 million. It's already a very small country. Uh, it's about the size of Spain, 24 million people. But most of the land can't be farmed, right? So that means already you've got a tough time. Throw into the mix the worst, uh, the worst droughts, I think on record, between 2001 and 2010. That was a consequence, mm-hmm. we think, of man-made climate change. That's well documented. There is an argument out there, I think it's pretty compelling, which says that the Syrian civil war is the first major humanitarian catastrophe to be overwhelmingly a result of man-made climate change. I think that's a decent argument. Google it. I think it's a decent argument. And then on top of that, on top of the fact that, you know, the land economy of Syria was never favourable. I think, you know, I'm, I'm a materialist and I look at material explanations for things. You have that, you know, the climate change, the original initial land economy. Then you also have a country which, look, this is not Iran. Iran as a nation is, I'm not just saying this to I'm half Iranian. <laughs> Iran as a nation is, you know, 5,000 years old. Persian is a very old language. Syria, as a nation state, very much like Iraq, is just a you know it's literally a, a line on a on a map that was you know put there by colonial powers after the First World War, after the Treaty of Versailles, and because of where it stands at the intersection of so many historic empires—the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the French, the British—it um, was essentially a dumping ground for relig- you know religious and ethnic minorities. Um, so, when people talk about oh, Sunni Shia, sectarianism, yeah, that's, there's some truth to that. And then they'll talk about the Kurds. But then there are also, you know, there are Yazidi, there are Druze, there are Kurds who support ISIL, you know? Mm-hmm. There are some Kurds who are, you know, communist revolutionaries um, who, you know, who they're in conflict with. So these are not large, homogenous groups. In terms of. Just how heterogeneous this country is in terms of its political aspirations, its ethnic composition, its religious composition. I think it's actually it's pretty unique in the region. I mean, it's just amazing. Alawite, mm. you know. I think you know. I think uh, its Christian population maybe maybe the largest in the Middle East now. I don't know. Iraq had around a million, I think. It's up there though, right? There used to be a lot of cops in Egypt. I mean, I don't yeah, know. I mean,
1: I'm thinking of Lebanon. I don't know. Um, there's a
0: you know, So it's a very, very complicated country, complicated situation. Then throw in, of course, 2011, right? So you've got the material explanations that are both long-term, medium-term, short-term. Then throw in 2011, and I think this is always going to kick off. That's the materialism stuff, and that's interesting. And the stuff I really want to talk about today is the ideological stuff, right? Because now we've got a caliphate there. Where does this come from? What does it mean? How does it relate to European conceptions of statehood, authority um, and sovereignty? And something I'm going to say today, and this is going to really upset, I think, a lot of listeners. And I'm not saying it to be provocative or polemical, but ISIL is not un-Islamic. Okay, ISIL is not un-Islamic. Concepts behind ISIL are not necessarily un-Islamic. The concepts behind the caliphate are not historically understood un-Islamic. They're pretty new Okay, in the, con- in the context, of the last hundred years, in particular, we haven't had a caliphate since I think 1924. Atatürk deserved it. Uh, dissolved it, deserved it. Dissolved it. I think there was effectively some kind of a caliphate. I think the Ottoman Empire internalised its functions because it was presiding over, yeah, you know, what it, yes. is now yeah. Saudi Arabia until it was obviously defeated at the end of the First World War, treaty for so on and so forth. But there wasn't a caliphate as these guys understand it. There hasn't been one for a thousand years. So that's something I really want to talk about. Today, I want to talk about how we're seeing a meeting in Syria of material conditions which have underlined that conflict. They really help us understand why this has happened, why it's so strong, why it's the biggest humanitarian crisis since the Second World War. Uh, I think you've got, let's get the data up on this. I already said it. I'll touch on it on a few lines but I've got a quote here the Syrian civil war this is from Andrew Tabler, Washington Institute for Near East mm. Policy the Syrian civil war is arguably the worst humanitarian crisis since the Second World War with a quarter of a million killed roughly the same number wounded or missing and half half of Syria's 24-22 million people displaced from their homes more than that Syria today is the largest battlefield and generator of Sunni-Shia sectarianism the world has ever seen with deep indications for the future boundaries of the Middle East and the spread of terrorism so, again, given it is, and I agree with that statement, the generator of Sunni Shia sectarianism, we're seeing real innovations in terms of its statehood. This is a, as, a, as, a, as a war, as, as a field not only of um, actions but ideas, is so, so important to understand now for the rest of the century. Hugely, hugely, hugely important. And we can't just go, it's not Islamic or this is medieval or they're psychos. Mm -hmm. This is so important to get right, not just for political commentators, not just for activists, but look, for people in the academy talking about legal and political theory, citizenship, sovereignty. This is not without historical precedent. This is not going away. And this also tells us something about uh, the demise of... Uh, sovereignty, as we understood it, right? And you were talking about, you know, uh, the bipolarity of the Cold World War, Cold War, <laughs> Cold World War, the <laughs> Third World War. Sorry, sort of uh, uh, portmanteau of two two different terms. We're talking about long term, 1648 Westphalia, quis regio, eius religio, which means whose territory, their faith. Something's changing, and that has implications for how we understand religion, politics, and moreover political religion
1: i'll get back to you james these are huge concepts
0: we've only you know been talking for 15 minutes which is great
1: so we've got a lot of time left Go on. yeah um so i wanted to initially respond to just this matter of climate change yeah um i think that's important i think it's also important to recognize that actually syrian civil society agencies tried to deal with the climate change problem pretty early on i mean it was recognized again this is a a thing however much one um you know, I hold I hold no flag for Assad at all. Um, but one has to recognise that uh, attempts to deal with climate change by civil society agencies were largely ignored by the international community. They, you know, the the, the call for help went out and it was not answered. So in in you know this it, it, this has been coming for a while. Uh, I also I I also don't think I I think you're right to say it's an element, but to to. Look for some sort of mechanistic relationship between climate change and civil war is, of course, uh, folly. Um, but yes, internal migration, of course, actually really quite substantial prior um, to the, the, the uh, outbreak of civil war. So, so that's that. I think is important. Um, uh, the que- the question of uh, theological innovation within Islam and uh, over the course of the twentieth century. This is, the, you know, I mean, it, one of the the things to point to is actually the development of a sort of uh, series of kind of theological political explanations within Islam uh, over the course of the twentieth century. Uh, which I am not an expert on and don't want to pronounce on uh, too clearly. Yeah. Uh, but, but it, I mean, you know, even with a, a sort of layman's grasp of the development of Islamic theology, you can see, uh, and, you know, the, the figure who is pointed to, of course, is Saeed Qutub um, and uh, successive figures after him who... Uh, develop uh, a series of sort of... They're, they're theological claims, but they are also political claims. They are political claims about, you know, that are designed to explain theologically the situation in the Middle East. Um, and they have been developed since. It's not purely Said Qutub. Um, the... Uh, yeah, I mean, here I think, I think it's important to look... Uh, so, you, I mean, you talk about innovations in statehood, and one of the the questions I think that is important is the kind um, of state that 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 Islamic state is. I don't th- I think, think it is inarguable that it is a state of a kind. It is innovative in some some ways. Yeah. Um, it is also c- kind of classic in in a lot of ways. It has a central sort of economic agency. Um, it extorts. Uh, it, it's civilian population. It's not, you know, it's not a classic state in in the way that conventional state theory addresses states in the West, but, you know, it has certain state functions. I think that's uh, inarguable. Uh, I think it is probably necessary at this point to talk a little bit about uh, another way into this question, which is the Kurdish question. Um, and... I don't want to sort of, uh, you know, there's enough cheering for, sort of simplistic cheering for the PKK. It's not necessary to do. But to, to think about, you know, the, the the contemporary turn of the Kurdish Workers' Party uh, and its sort of uh, exercises in Syria at the moment, uh, one has to go, I think, right the way back uh, to the formation of the states of, uh, of the region. Uh, and that is really... Uh, you know, beginning of the twentieth century, uh, and this is very different to the formation of European nation states. European nation states are formed more or less coterminously with the development of a capitalist system at home. It's an endogenous development and goes, i.e., it is part of and goes along alongside with uh, the formation of nation states within Europe. This is not quite the case in the Middle East. Uh, the borders we have today are largely a function of division of the Ottoman Empire at the hands of france and of France and Britain who are victorious over it uh, and the current division between the, the current borders between Iraq and Syria are largely a consequence of their division into mandates you have on the other hand and so 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 here you have the creation of nation states uh external and as part of intercapitalist rivalries uh, between european nation states who have their own sort of internally developing uh, economies capitalist economies so so already you have a, a slightly different uh first matter of nation states within within the middle east um uh, and you know uh, that question whether whether one can contain multiple nations in a single state is uh one that we can talk about uh it is of course a, a an important matter in the middle east as concerns turkey Becomes simpler to form the Turkish nation state after they exterminate the Armenians in 1915, 1916 as well. Arguably, uh, a necessary prerequisite for that. Mm. Uh, well, yes, uh, one point two million deaths <laughs> 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 to, go, to uh, go from a tran- yeah, 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 yeah.
0: transnational sort of empire, yep, multi-ethnic yep, yep. to the kind of state Atatürk wanted. Yeah, yeah, had to, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, the you know, in, in fact, the, I mean, uh, the reason I come at this through through the Kurdish question is, is partly because you know there, there is actually. Uh, provision made, I think, in 1920 for the existence of a Kurdish... Now, maybe it's important to say that the Kurds um, are, are you know, uh, the Kurdish population is is large and it is split between uh, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, uh, and Iran.
0: Largest uh, unrecognized nation, nation in the world. Yes, I say yeah, nation yeah. state because parts of it are effectively a state now. Yeah, even right. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Um, so a provision is made actually in the Treaty of Sevres in 1920 uh, for a small and a small. And small is an important word here uh, independent Kurdistan um, and uh, and provided that an armenian state exists as well mm. um and these conditions were actually rejected by uh you know sort of uh, tribal leaders and landowners Kurdish landowners because the territory of the Kurdish state was relatively small compared to the the uh, the region occupied by by the Kurdish population now uh, sort of the the early attempts at alliance with sort of kamalis is sort of crushed, and the Kemalists are Turkish nationalists, um, uh, you know, they, they, they sort of crushed sort of Kurdish, Kurdish uprisings and a series of uh, uh, nationalist riots sort of characterized the early period of Kurdish nationalism. Uh, you know, so... Uh, <laughs> I, I'm trying to condense actually here a uh, large and complex history while not doing uh, total violence to it. Um, if anyone
0: can do it you can do it
1: James. Yeah so I suppose I follow sort of Hamid uh, Bolsaslan uh, here when talking about sort of so you have a period of Kurdish nationalism proper which runs sort of 1919 or so right up until 1990. Yeah. Um, and in the middle of that you have a sort of 1946 Republic of Mahabad um, which is very rapidly crushed, uh, and then from 1990 until today, um, you have what we could call a crisis of nationalism within the Kurdish movement, the Kurdish national movement, um, and these, the, you know, the, what is happening here is you have the succession in the region uh, between sort of various f- factions of the bourgeoisie, initially a sort of landed, traditional. Uh, sort of ruling class, uh, you have, then you have the rise of a sort of intellectual petty bourgeoisie, and then of course uh, the oil barons or oil bourgeoisie yeah um, i again you know there, there are sort of domestic state politics involved in the, in the Kurdish question, um, but I, I think perhaps one of the things to say here is is the failure to establish. Uh, a Kurdish state, leads to a situation where you have uh, a series of sort of Distant populations crushed, um, particularly by Turkey, and particularly by uh, you know there's there's actually a significant sort of Iranian uh, purge of Kurds as well. Absolutely,
0: people a, talk about you know Iran has a number of human rights failings. Uh, you know this thing about hangings isn't as bad as is often obviously I'm obviously getting to death penalty every, everywhere and anywhere, especially uh, by means as barbarous as hanging. But um, it's over. Uh, it's overestimated by you know a lot of Western interpretations. Most most of the hangings, however, um, are for political distance, not just in Kurdistan but also in Baluchistan, because you know they really do not tolerate this stuff. Right? They are not. It's not for drug dealers. Drugs in general. Death penalty is reserved for political distance in Iran, and that tends to mean yeah, separatists in uh, Baluchistan, the Pakistan border, and Kurdistan in the north. I want to break down this question now into a few sort of. Uh, Claims here. Let's put this out there. What's the difference between Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, you know? Islamic State is arguably a state. They're saying it's so cool, but I think it's pretty clearly a state. It's quite clearly subject to vertical leadership. It's quite clearly um, less adept at asymmetric warfare as Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda has been, you know, the American state has been nailing Al-Qaeda for 10 years. That kind of organisation can go underground. And can then, you know, recuperate, revive, come back later. When you have, uh, you know, sovereign territory, you can't quite do that. You will be drawn into open uh, fields of conflict, much more discernibly. Very different kind of warfare. <clears throat> Al Qaeda, very horizontalist, much more about, you know, dissemination of ideas than, you know, a concrete uh, organisational vehicle or a state. Secondly, I want to return to that point I said before about. ISIS, ISIL being un-Islamic also about Islam being a religion of peace now I'm not going to go all Christopher Hitchens here I don't think any religion is inherently a religion of peace of course anything that has a liturgy, anything that has you know, a set of codified texts can be interpreted or misinterpreted any number of ways it's about how humans engage those texts and how that informs their practice their agency in the world Right? these are not uh, 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 you know, aspersions or uh, things I'm saying about Islam generally the difference between Al-Qaeda and ISIL, this is a very easy way of understanding it, it's made things much more clearer in my mind, is that what maybe liberal Muslims, or even Al-Qaeda actually, understand as sinners, right? What they understand as sinners, ISIL look at as apostates. Now, apostasy is a really nasty thing in Islam, right? Mm -hmm. And apostasy uh, is serious. So what would be a sin for many Muslims, for instance, drinking, gambling, um, you know, these are quite obviously sins in Islam, that's indisputable. For people within ISIL, people like Baghdadi and so on, this is apostasy, which is a very, very serious concern. Here's a quote. Again, the Atlantic, if you put Atlantic, Islamic State, they have written fantastic article after fantastic article on this entire subject. Here's a quote from an article I think in August. Muslims can reject the Islamic State, nearly all do, but pretending that it isn't actually a religious millenarian group with theology that must be understood to be combated has already led the United States to underestimate it and back foolish schemes to counter it. We'll need to get acquainted with the Islamic State's intellectual genealogy as we're beginning to try to do on this show if we're react if we to react in a way that will not strengthen it but instead help it self immolate in its own excessive zeal. Here's another quote from Princeton Scholar Bernard Haeckel, uh, leading expert on the group's theology. This is an embarrassed—the idea that it's un-Islamic, embarrassed and politically incorrect—with a cotton candy view of Islam that ne- neglects what it has historically and legally required. So, what are its innovations? You know, we should get some state theory, we should get Guyson over from Florence, my boy Gaetano, that Gaetano, legal and political theorist. What are its big innovations? Okay, so it's a state. It has an army. Go on Wikipedia, Islamic State military, Google it again, you'll see it has some things. They had some MiGs, these were actually shot down by Assad's people, by anti-aircraft missiles. They had MiGs, they had airplanes. What they've got is lots of uh, Humvees, they've got heavy artillery, they have a very clear standing army, they've got resources, they have a very minimal tax regime, they have some obligations on their citizenry. This is a state formally understood. What is different about it to, say, Britain or France or China or Russia is they view it as un-Islamic to formally recognise any borders Right. Any borders. That is very, very, very different, obviously, to the state historically understood after Westphalia, 1648. You know, states are defined by a monopoly of legitimate violence within their own borders and recognising the borders of other states. Okay, so arguably ISIL adheres the first point, but not the second one. Secondly, in addition to not recognising borders, and that's actually manifest just in the very concept of, you know, the Islamic State. Right. It's already eroded that historic meaningless border really between Iraq and Syria it means to do so actually uh, you know, for, as, for as much as it can in the immediate kind of vicinity around its present borders although it doesn't recognise those I've already outlined um, in addition to that people can't hold public office you can't be elected again this is apostasy to engage in elections and they're very clear about this for ISIL is apostasy every Muslim that engages in elections in a liberal democracy is an apostate they're going to hell, so again, this is a very, very interesting idea of the state you might say people lazy, you know maybe sort of lazy, although it 's not a necessarily uh, idiotic thing to think, would say, well, this is quite similar then to kind of the absolutist state, the pre westphalian absolutist state of Europe, right, you know uh, Louis the Fourteenth or Charles I you know so that somebody like Baghdadi now could be understood as one of these sort of Auto, you know, sort of despots, tyrants in pre-modern Europe but what's really interesting and I, I, I don't think there's uh, much scholarship about this at the moment is that there is actually almost a concept of consent within a lot of the uh, intellectual output of ISIL at the moment so something like Baghdadi if he's not seen to exhibit authority or what they call Ambar, um, that, that consent to him as the caliph can be withdrawn Right. It's a bit like John Locke. You read you know John Locke, you know this. It's almost like a kind of it's an interesting variant on social contractarianism, right? There's a contract between ruler and ruled that he has to preside over a form of an effective form of Sharia. He has to embody Amber, which again, what's the European So he's
1: a charismatic leader.
0: Charismatic leader, precisely, right? So he has to exhibit as a gammon calls it, octoritas, authority, both constitutionally, legally, but also in his own personal being, through his own moral probity as a Muslim. Also, this is another big, big difference between Baghdadi and bin Laden is that, you know, he comes from, uh, what do they call this in Islam? Ah, I've got the quote here, I've got the line. He comes basically, you know, he's a descendant of Muhammad, right?
1: Quraysh. Yeah.
0: yeah. We call it, uh, we call it, what we call it? We call it Ta'ib and Farsi, I think. But yeah, so he's a descendant of Muhammad. So he can be legally understood, he can be a caliph, whereas uh, bin Laden never could have been. So those are a few kind of. But let's say premises about the Islamic State how it differs to uh, Al-Qaeda my view on Islam why it can you know, it doesn't have to be understood as a religion of peace when people are calling sinners apostates and how we need to begin to understand the Islamic State as a kind of state ready for the 21st century different to the Westphalian state and not necessarily reverting to pre-born forms of statehood so James we've got half an hour left it feels like we've covered too much very bitty. We're talking about Kurdistan, statehood, Islam, yeah. the past, the look. future. Let's try and tie some really key concepts down. Go on. Okay.
1: Look, the reason I'm talking about Kurdistan is that the the way that there there are transformations in the question of how you know you form a nation state is it reflects as much on the on what is happening with Islamic state as it does uh, as, as, it, as it does you know within the sort of Kurdish canton itself. Do you think these
0: are two sides of the same coin, really?
1: I think they are two expressions of a degrading world order. Yeah. Um, And I think that there is a long transcendence of the classical nation state that begins after the collapse of Bretton Woods in 1973, of the establishment of a global, the development, or gradual development of a global economic order in which the nation state is no longer the predicate actor Right. So, uh, you know, in fact, the the nation or the state um, is increasingly integrated into a global economic system, which is uh, presided over actually by big capital. Um, And the PKK has to deal with this as much as the Islamic State does. Um, the, The question of national liberation is not the same as it was in the middle of the 20th century. So, certainly between 1945 and 1973, you have sort of nationalism from below. It's a kind of struggle that seeks to detach itself from uh, a world order in which there is sort of a centre and a periphery. And, Mm. uh, you know, this this is a sort of uh, Samur Amin's thesis. Um, That, you know, And the struggle then was to become part of a sort of, a, a, a sort of a different, a different kind of economic order. Um, you know, and and you know, the, the the collapse of the USSR is quite quite important to understand why this can't happen anymore. Um, look, I, you know, I. I you know the, the, I, I'm, I'm again. I'm finding it difficult here because you know you you know your definition of Islamic State makes it quite difficult. You know to, to uh, here's uh, a question.
0: How different is it actually then to what's going on in North Syria with Kurdistan? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know. You're saying these are two these are two expressions of a uh, degrading world order. Is intervention this coalition now involved in in Syria is really
1: unprecedented in scale? Yeah. Why are they involved? Uh, is it to
0: restore that world order? Because <laughs> clearly they don't believe in
1: that. I don't. Th- I don't think. I don't think they're attempting to restore a world order there. I think you know. I so. Uh, I think it's important to look at what, say, someone like Giovanni Arrighi says in uh, in the long twentieth century, um, in that we bump into a, a problem. This is something that Gopal Balakrishnan says as well. Bump into a problem uh, that neoliberal global order Uh, only prolongs American hegemony so long actually Um, and we 40 years right yeah and we 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 sort of enter into a series of possible world orders either uh, a global empire run by the West uh, or a world market society largely sort of very heavily sort of oriented towards the East Um, or and one of the things, this is you know, the worrying thing about Origi's projections: a sort of long-term system, systemic chaos. Um, and now, look, it doesn't actually. I don't think look like a fully, as kind of fully, a full-throated global Western-run empire um, is functional. I don't, you know, it's not really happening. Uh, it also seems improbable that there is any kind of uh, drive towards global assertion on the part of the East. And, you know, and again, this is an argument made by Balakrishnan, um, you know, you have a series of, of allied powers who on the one hand operate to stave off financial sort of collapse, financial meltdown, which we see these days, um, but actually doesn't, can't quite make a, a viable Global capitalist order uh, sustainable and uh, 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 functional uh, the problem here is that, that you now you then have on the other hand uh, a series of sort of uh, long term chaotic developments uh, arising out of struggles between uh, a kind of Somewhat diminished capitalism and sort of agencies of opposition that are kind of dispersed, like the Islamic State. Um, but also, you know, you could include here Naxalite rebellions in northern India, mm. Somali pirates, uh, these kind of things. And I think these are actually all expressions uh, of, of se- seriously inconclusive struggles between a sort of extractive regimes. Um, But do you not
0: think that with Islamic State, it's different to... I mean, look, the whole idea of the growth of non-state actors, that was a big research agenda in the 90s, the Mm. noughties. Clearly, Islamic State, if it's a non-state actor, is a very different kind of non-state actor to to Somali pirates, to Al-Qaeda, to... um, I mean, there's a whole variety of them. It doesn't necessarily... They don't need to be brown or Muslim. Mm-hmm. That was a big... We, You know, we don't need to go over that. You know, every so the end of the nation state meant the rise of non-state actors. Is this the return of the nation state in a particular way,
1: just with different features? <sighs> uh... Yes, possibly. I mean, I you know I. I mean that was the I mean, cause that was the order until the nineteenth century. There were
0: different kinds of states with varying organizational features sitting alongside one another. I don't think ISIL looks pretty different to everything we've seen over the course of the last twenty mm. years here, hasn't it? And also as a consequence of that, okay. Here's a question: What do you think the US wants now in the Middle
1: East? What's its end game? What, how does that align with Al Qaeda and ISIL? Well, now that I think is uh, it, that comes back to to. Uh, the that that kind of, that means we have to address the question of the Syrian civil war more 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 specifically yeah. i think and and what actually the American interest here is um and i i am you know I think there's a a certain fraction of the anti imperialist left which maintains a, a, a sort of a, a sort of uh, rather beguiled fondness for Assad which is you know willing to paint him as a blameless victim of imperialist slander <laughs> and propaganda um but to, I mean, to decry American imperialism, one hardly needs to defend Assad. After all, you know, the, the, a certain ambiguity towards the Assad government has been held by the guardians of American for, foreign policy ever since Syria proved itself itself quite useful during the early wars of the the, the early <laughs> years of the war on terror. Mm. Um, you know, uh, Maher Arar is the the. the the classic case was a Syrian and Canadian citizen uh, who was uh, uh, rendered to a black site in Syria and uh, tortured by uh, uh, Syrian agents uh, mm-hmm. at the behest of the United States. It's, you know, uh, the, a, CIA, a CIA operative, Bob Bayer, uh, you know, to quote him, if you want a serious interrogation, you send a prisoner to Jordan. If you want them to be tortured, you send them to Syria. If you want someone to disappear, you send them to Egypt. Um, now, all of that, you know, and this probably accounts for the slowness of the U.S. government to, con- to condemn the Syrian government's crackdown on the protests in their early days, and uh, Hillary Clinton's rather odd characterization of Bashar al-Assad as a reformer. This was what she says quite early on. In now, that's not to say that Washington, you know, just because Washington thought of the Assad regime as occasionally pliable, their experience of, of certainly Hafez al-Assad, um, and Bashar's the, father, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, the unpredictability of, of Assad's government um, means that, that, of course, they would, would probably like him and, I mean, in fact, inarguably uh, long-term want him gone. Uh, They funded opposition groups even as they reopened diplomatic relationships with the Syrian state. Um, I think it's also reasonably uncontroversial that the longer-term American ideal for the region is the breakdown of Syria into smaller, weakler, confessional statelets of a kind. So actually
0: the end of the state formally understood in the 20th century Now may begin to be part of U.S. policy in the region.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there is a there is a a a U.S. uh, military policy document that that sort of foresees uh, the rise of a a Sunni Salafi. uh, state or statelet, uh, much akin to ISIS. About two years before before something like it emerges, uh, is uh, an excellent piece by Hugh Hugh Roberts that that, that outlines this. Um, but but you know the, the, you know the, so so yes the the you know some of the US fears for the region is a kind of um, you know a, a state actor that is capable of opposing its sort of uh, its ability to operate freely. Mm. Um, and it would be much easier to have kind of dispersed and uh, 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 incompatible uh, theological, political regimes than uh, sort of than something like the Syrian nation state, which does combine or did combine uh, various religious minorities in relatively secular, uh, uh, well, I mean, explicitly secular uh, regime, but. but uh, but, but the thing, I mean, I suppose the thing to say here or, or the thing that I think is important to remember um, and, you know, the, the thing that, that becomes clear to me from speaking with Syrian refugees, for instance, um, is that the reason that Syria provided so well-functioning an external torture chamber for the CIA is that it had such extensive structures in place already. Um, and that's partly the result of consolidation by Hafez al-Assad, uh, apparatus inherited by, by Bashar. I mean, the thing to say about, uh, about the current Assad is that he was never intended as the replacement for his father. It's that his older brother dies in a car crash. And, yeah. Um, He's very similar, actually. Well, this is the thing, right? Because uh, kind of, I think, analogous
0: um, situation is with the Pahlavi dynasty in Iran. Shah Reza Pahlavi, um, his dad, was Cossack. He was part of a Russian regiment, which used to, you know, the most eminent sort of fighting regiment within Iran. I think he a power in 1920. He's similar to Ataturk, right? Very strong guy uh, in many ways, physically very intimidating. Also, just, you know, a very powerful personality. His son, physically very diminutive, much smaller, but also, yeah, same with his personality, right? And the, the presumption was in 2011 that Assad was a bit like Reza Pahlavi, Right mm. he was too well educated, too mm. effete, too soft, that he could never oversee the kind of murder that maybe
1: a Mubarak could a former
0: Air Force, come on. We now see that's not the case very <laughs> yes, clearly. Uh,
1: so, I mean, one of the things I think that the, the, the US, I think, would be satisfied in retaining uh, a cohesive Syrian state if it could find someone like an Erdogan to, to put in there. Well, this, um, this is
0: the question then for, I mean, we had uh, Mohammed Atik, FSA activist over here in London. Uh, we need to get him back on soon. I mean... For someone like Mohammed, who may be listening, he's not here in the studio, like I say. For someone like Mohammed, my question would be, well, what's the FSA's end game here, right? Because it's quite clear that Syria now, given the migration, given the deaths, given the destruction not only of physical infrastructure, but human capital, right, in terms of both murder and people leaving the country, mm. clearly it won't be able to run a civil service, sort of state bureaucracy anytime soon, run universities, oversee the kinds of public services that people took for granted before 2011 even taking into account all the things we started to show with, climate change, the lack of cultivable land, uh, the very sort of mixed ethnic and religious composition of the country. All of that seems really difficult. I mean, to me, it looks like Afghanistan, right? Afghanistan between, let's say, between 1980, the beginning of the Soviet invasion, and then, I think, 2004, and then all the way till now, it's just smashed to bits. Mm -hmm. The geography of the country changes. Um, You know, just everything changes, right? I think now Afghanistan... You know, now it has a big standing army, 200,000 people. I think it creates 10,000 grads a year. 10,000 grads a year. This is a country, I think, of what, 35 million? Big birth rates, demographic changes. It's growing pretty quickly. And, you know, you can't run a country, you can't run state bureaucracies with 10,000 graduates a year, right? Mm. So Syria really won't be doing that stuff anytime soon, right? Even if there's a political agreement tomorrow, Syria wouldn't be able to oversee those kinds of state bureaucracies anytime soon. That isn't going to happen. So, what's the best? Outcome here for the FSA, it would be these, um, these, you know, this fictitious army that Cameron's talking about, even if it existed, which it doesn't, right, of 70,000 people, sort of agreed in terms of what they want to achieve, acting in concert with one another, yeah, um, even if that existed, the best case scenario for the FSA would be some kind of military strongman. Yeah. Who would seize power? You know, reinstall a rule of law, begin to oversee a minimal implementation of public services, guarantee stability both internally and externally. Best case scenario for the FSA, and also for you know America if it wants to keep Syria as it is. Even mm. that seems very, very difficult. And to what extent is that really better than I said
1: before 2011? I don't think it is. Yeah. So yeah. James. Look, I mean, you know, the problem with talking about the FSA is that that no such cohesive. Entity really exists at the moment. Um, there are, are lots of uh, sort of
0: half a dozen people yeah. in Swiss hotels, right? I mean, that's one. Or, that's one <laughs> argument.
1: That's, that's well, I mean, this is um, what the journalist James Harknell uh, told the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, yeah. which is the the moderates that the West backs are people who have really no, you know no existence at all within Syria. Um, insofar as as the West backs anyone in Syria, they usually get murdered. Quite. Quite quickly because they are seen to be agents of sort of Western domination and uh, corruption, which is, uh, in many cases, inarguable. <laughs> I mean, by one count, um,
0: there are thirteen major "quote unquote" rebel groups operating in Syria, but it, the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency has said there may be as many as twelve hundred groups. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. So, given that, it's difficult to talk about the FSA and the kinds of terms that Cameron. And well, I mean, this is look. This too. is
1: this is just fantasy. This, this seventy thousand moderate rebels are about to sort of, you know, if we drop some bombs on Raqqa, then suddenly, you know, with th- our eight was, jets, you know, I mean, it's worth talking, I suppose, a little bit about the domestic case here, which is, you know, the case as put by the current government, and it's, it is perhaps something that that is that is worth uh, 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 us concentrating on because, you know, often it can feel sort of, you know as if there isn't any anything that anyone can do uh here but look there is a you know the 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 case for for bombing here is is predicated on all sorts of uh sort of forced uh, arguments uh, such as you know uh, there is a humanitarian crisis, something needs to be done, there's something that we can do is bomb people, so therefore we must bomb people mm-hmm. you know, this is This is essentially the 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 logical argument as made by by Cameron at various points in in, mm-hmm. in the debate in parliament, but the, you know the the notion that also by, by bombing Raqqa suddenly the, this will tip the Syrian civil war in one direction or another is simply fatuous. The notion, you know, the notion that there is a, a sort of homogeneous uh, 70,000 fighters ready to say, you know, not that 70,000 is even anything like a sufficient number to win a war in Syria. I mean, that's ludicrous in and of itself. Uh, um, can, I, can I just clarify for uh, listeners, our involvement, concretely, what does it mean? We're seeing the
0: spectacle in Parliament, 650 MPs, how many bits of hardware involved, Eight jets, Mm. that's British involvement.
1: I mean, yeah, yes and no. I mean, I think there is something here that is uh, to do with a, a sort of symbolic British commitment to what will be now, Philip Hammond, the Defence Secretary, tells us, an extremely long war. Um, and that really actually is laying the groundwork probably for further British military involvement. You think more ground I, troops? I, well, I think, well, I mean, William Hague is already saying, and, and look, Hague is a hawk. He he was Defence Secretary for a long time, Foreign Secretary for a long time, sorry. Um, he, you know, he is someone who, you know, has the, you know, has the... the you know, the channel to various parts of the British military establishment and uh, military arms establishment. Um, you know, the, you know, if Haig says we should expect to put ground troops in, it's because there are people telling him that we will have to put ground troops in. It's not because he's had a thought. The man doesn't think. He has, you know, people tell him things. Um yeah, I mean, so so that is one thing that I think that we should, you know, look at here is is you know uh, to be cautious about the, the the arguments that are going to be made about the the need to deepen our involvement, and the arguments that will be made that the vote in parliament and something like uh, UN Security Council Resolution two two four nine authorise it. They do not. Mm. And that, I think, is something that, 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 that will increasingly become a future debate here. What will happen is that, that, uh, that there will be no territorial advance, really, uh, uh, because of British involvement, and then the, the argument will be made for deepening our, our We've got our 10 minutes left
0: here on Avara FM, uh, on Residence 104.4 FM, London's number one radio station. What do you make of the Stop the War uh, claim about actually, actually, um, the international of, internationalism of jihadism, of uh, you know of people participating in the conflict alongside you know the Islamic State the so-called Islamic State actually replicates the internationalism of the international brigades that fought against Franco in nineteen thirty Spain despite what Hillary Ben says I mean from my view this just seems even if you believe that I mean there's some obviously there's some validity to it you, arguably right I mean I don't agree with it I mean that you could then say that you know fascist fighting alongside you know Ukrainian ultranationalists are also you know like the international Brigades. Yeah. it's obviously ridiculous even if you think there's some validity to it, I mean, for an organisation which only exists to broker protest, anti-war protest, amongst ideologically heterogeneous disparate groups, why do they have to say that? Why do they feel compelled to say that? When they're, they're, all, they're, all they're there for is to broker protest?
1: Uh, yeah, well, listen... And generally? The internal politics of sort of obscure Trotskyist sects uh, have a, a disproportionate influence on um, the leadership of Stop the War Coalition. And um, Insofar as that analogy is uh mechanistically true i suppose i can agree with it but it provides us it provides us i think and it, you know it the, the the as i understand it the way in which that claim was made is mm-hmm. it was actually made in in a way that was not necessarily uh, uh as approving as it sounds um uh but you know i haven't read the original piece i have no interest in reading the original mm-hmm. piece um uh you know, the the so yes, there are people travelling to a region because they are inspired by a particular uh by a particular idea and feel political commitment towards it, I think that is probably inarguable. But um there is, you know, a question that, that has not been tackled here and it's one of the things I think is, you know, complex and actually how we have avoided to some extent is that when so for instance when you say things like uh, the Islamic State is uh an ex- is Islamic, you know, is is a particular it's version not of islamic yeah, yep. yeah. 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 Um, I I I say islamic, I, I'm saying yeah. it's Islamic I'm saying un Islamic. I agree with you. Yeah. Um but it's also that, you know, the the way that this kind of thing is deployed domestically mm. is to justify uh a reading of political Islam that actually evacuates it of its political antagonisms. So, you know, one of the reasons that political theological explanations have purchase is political. Um, it is because there is, you know, people <laughs> turn on the TV um, and, and see wars, uh, you know, and see sort of Casualty figures from Afghanistan, who see, uh, you know, a sort of endless and intractable sort of uh, imperialist carve-ups mm-hmm. for the last hundred years mm-hmm. uh, in in the Middle East, mm-hmm. uh, and say, okay, well, look, maybe, you know, and when someone says, therefore, there is a theological explanation for this, mm-hmm. uh, and there is a theological explanation that provides a a, a, a political answer to a political problem. Um, it, it is, in fact, very conservative. You know, I don't dispute that, but you're but saying you're it,
0: saying it's monocausal. I'm just saying it's both.
1: No, I'm not saying it's monocausal. Well, I mean, clearly, I I, a- I'm saying that there is an ideologically motivating structure here. Yeah. Yes, I agree with you, yeah. but it, it gains its purchase from from political antagonisms, and I think that 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 is inarguable, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, well, I'm, know, I'm saying I'm saying
0: it's not exclusively that, though. It's not exclusively that. Clearly, I mean, there's, there there have been manifestations of precisely what we're talking about. Uh, Throughout the history of not just Islam and
1: Christianity, you know. I mean, you know, we look favorably on uh, Anabaptist movements in in the sort of 14th, 15th, 16th century. And
0: Munster looks pretty much like Raqqa. You know, Munster in the early 16th century looks pretty much like Raqqa does right now, right? In terms of who's ruling it, which were. You'd call them Anabaptist revolutionaries, effectively. Yeah. Not that dissimilar to what we're seeing right now in in Syria.
1: And sort of bloodthirsty and, you know, right. uh, Jan yeah. of Leiden, and things like Unhinged that. Unhinged, so, kind so of, yeah. You know, and I think there is a limit to 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 suggesting. Is one of the things that I was sort of trying to grapple with earlier is that there is, I think, a limit to talking about uh, millenarianism simply as a category that can uh, apply across sort of theological political. Uh, 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 structures. I, it, 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 it's a catch-all term that that is not necessarily it does much work of explanation. But you know, again, the thing I would say here is that one of the reasons that that and I think uh, one of the reasons that 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 uh, some you know some of these ideas have purchase is is because they they you know they are. Political, theological, and I would place the emphasis on political. There are theological explanations Clearly. of political problems, absolutely. And, and, you know, and one of the reasons for you know, for their purchase is precisely, in fact, the the sort of gradual extermination of, of uh, idea, political ideas to their left, uh, and the absence of any purchase had by them in in the same spaces.
0: I think any 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 kind of contentious conflict, material, political explanations always account for the vast majority of why people participate or agree with something, right? Absolutely. But when you're looking at the kind of the political project with ISIL here, right, um, it is clearly determined where there are people at the top uh, and their concerns aren't purely political. Al-Qaeda, actually, now we can talk about these things a bit more honestly. Al-Qaeda had quite legitimate political concerns. Well, they did objectively, right? They want American soldiers. I mean, this are really minute compared to the Islamic State. They want American soldiers out of Saudi Arabia. OK, that was one of them. They wanted the end of the state of Israel. I'm not saying it's legitimate, but these these are understood. You can make sense of this. These are clearly very political concerns. They're not theological concerns, right? Um, uh, these, you know, that's very different to people saying, "Well, any Muslim that engages in elections anywhere on earth is an apostate." Mm-mm. So Al Qaeda is very, very different to Islamic State. Now, people that may go over there, people that may agree with certain criticisms of american foreign policy western interventionism right uh you know colonial histories of not just america but also the european great powers absolutely and i think al-qaeda capture a heck of a lot of that right you couldn't say that of course you couldn't say that um oh, look i you know, donald trump's right now he's talking about when the twin towers fell down and he's saying you know look actually loads of muslims were celebrating." that's that's complete nonsense, mm. right? But let's be honest. There were there were celebrations in the West Bank. For, I had Muslim friends who told me. They told me. You know, my father's a Muslim. They told me. Ah, well, it's not great, but that'll teach the Yanks a lesson. Punch on the nose. They did say that. Well, let's let's be honest, right? And there is there is a grain of truth to it as well. It's disgusting. It was an attack on civilians. But this is the world's you know, eminent imperial power. This was the centre of its economic dominance. And, you know, this was out of nowhere. So we've got six minutes left. This was out of three minutes left. So I better be quick. This was out of nowhere, right? So those political material concerns you're talking about, I think the Al-Qaeda captures all of that. I think that's what I'm saying with Islamic State. There's something more. And I think that's why to explain their actions, to explain and understand what has to happen now in response to it, not by Western states but by us, we have to be a bit more clear and a bit more precise about the theology as well as the politics.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're in agreement on that. I mean, what I would say is that that, that, that precisely that it is not incomprehensible, right? I mean that it, that it has like a very specific uh, and you know in its own terms, uh, cohesive rationale. Mm. Um, it, you know, if you accept its axioms, then it has explanatory power. Um, Perhaps the thing I, you know, I, I really do want to emphasize here is that, you know, like the the role of the US in in the region is is still immense and in fact it will in many ways be the the I think the determining factor here. Um if the US can find an Erdogan like figure to replace Assad with, that is what will happen. Uh, that I think is actually extremely unlikely. Um I think this conflict is likely to be extremely intractable. I think Precisely because it's in some senses a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia, um, Saudi Arabia and Iran as well. <laughs> these kind only of only the Chinese you know. aren't involved right now. Well, I mean, the Chinese have a are building a naval base in Djibouti, uh, mm. so you know they. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Mm. Um, you know, and you know, perhaps one of the things we haven't talked about is precisely the way in which uh, interventions of this kind actually opened the door for, you know, uh, and, you know in, in the course of the next century, an increasing number of proxy wars like this one. Um, the, the thing I think, you know, we should say is, is that, you know, to insist that Assad must go before a settlement is reached or movement towards a settlement is reached is uh, a laudable and perhaps virtuous position, but it's not one that I think has much contact with political reality at the moment. So not American imperialism not Assad, but international socialism. You're not saying that. You've uh, got to be a bit more... Well, I mean, I think, I think that probably actually is my political position. Right. Um, but uh, I, I also don't think that, uh, you know, well, I, look, I'm not in the business of making American foreign policy and right. I think I'm not going to pretend to be.
0: This is something we've got to suss out because right now, you know, we've got to arm the curse of the teeth, long live the YPG, but other than that, there are far more questions than there are answers right now from the left when it comes to Syria <laughs> and how we can achieve something meaningful... Peaceful, sustainable, just uh, for our brothers and sisters elsewhere in the Middle East. Right. Well, James, thank you as ever. My name's Aaron Mustard. This is the FM. See you same time, same place next week. Bye.